to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Of Luke, looking at major themes of the book of Luke. And um, last week I talked about pray like Jesus and how Jesus teaches his followers to pray. And we looked at that, and then we prayed for some people afterwards. It was quite fun. Did you guys have a good time last week? Yep, cool. All four of us did. And then today I'm going to continue a theme that I've already talked about. But one of the major themes in the book of Luke, um, one of the themes in Jesus' life, is the inclusion of outsiders. And we see that where the religious establishment of Jesus' day, uh, they, they decided and determined who was in and who was out. And Jesus was so controversial. He would have insulted all of us. I really believe that the way that churches set up their churches, the way we establish who's in and out today is very similar to this, the first century. We're going to look at that. But Jesus was so controversial, not to be controversial, but because he had something that he was passionate about. And that was the heart of God. And his, God's heart includes the least likely people. And so we're going to look at a very familiar story this morning. Um, so if you have a Bible, go to Luke chapter 10. Um, we're going to look at a story that most of us have heard, everyone has an understanding of at some point. And I want to ask you this morning to just put everything you've thought of when it comes to this story outside of your mind and be open to something new today. Because I think we're going to discover something new. You guys with me this morning? 9.15, you are awake. I just got to say... Well, let me remind you that next week is Daylight Savings. We lose an hour. So most of you are going to be going to the 1115. (laughs) So uh, chapter 10, verse 25. Let's read this together. Um, It says this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The teacher of the law, the expert of the law, excuse me, is not asking Jesus, how do I go to heaven? What do I have to believe so that when I die, I go someplace else? That's not what he's asking. That's not what eternal life meant in the first century. The expert of the law is asking a very common question in the first century. It was a a question that rabbis and and the Israelites were asking all the time. And the question is, is more like, Jesus, what must I do to live in harmony with God now? What must I do to live a blessed life with God here and now? That's what he's asking about. What is that harmony and blessed life of God that he promises the Israelites look like? And um, the reason he's asking this is because um, in, we know that in the Old Testament, in really the Torah, the first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that there were 613 laws. Now, the laws to the Israelites were not restrictions and rules. These laws to them were words of life. To the Jew, the 613 commands were instructions on life now. How do you live a vibrant life with God? That's what it meant to the Jewish community thousands of years ago. And so Jesus is asked a question, and he responds with another question. He says, what, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? You ever wonder why Jesus asks questions, answers questions with questions? Does that ever frustrate you? 
Uh, it's what rabbis do. In fact, one famous rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, was asked, why do rabbis always answer questions with more questions? And his response was, why shouldn't rabbis answer questions with more questions? <laughs> Jesus is questioning him. He knows what's going on. But this was a form of dialogue. It was a form of gaining knowledge out of the student and, and kind of pulling it together. And so he asked, um, not what, what must I do? Uh, he says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And um, he's asking, how do you interpret the law? 613 laws in the Old Testament. And here's what was going on by the time Jesus comes around. Rabbis would rank the laws, all 613 laws. They ranked them like college football teams. I mean, so they were very interested in what was the, the the, the best law or the first law to live. And for the most part, around the time of Jesus, everyone agreed with the first response, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might or strength. Or in, in Hebrew, it's mahode. Say mahode. All of us, mahode. It's might. It means love the Lord your God with all, all of your muchness. All, all of your atoms and quarks, your very existence. Love God with all of that stuff. And so everyone agreed that the first command was that command. Um, and, and there were rabbis that would debate the second command. What was the second great command? And you had two famous rabbis, Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel. And Rabbi Shammai and Hillel lived 50 years before Jesus, and they were famous. Everyone, by the time Jesus comes around, knew about those rabbis. And those rabbis debated all sorts of things, like what was the second great command, second commandment, and all sorts of things. And by the time Jesus comes onto the scene, uh, we knew where Shammai stood and where uh, Hillel stood. Shammai said, uh, I'm sorry, Hillel said uh, that uh, the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. So the first command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And with all of your might, and the second command was Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. But Shammai believed in the first command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and to be holy as God is holy. Those were the two um, kind of popular opinions of the second command. Okay, you're with me? So, when Jesus says, how do you interpret it? He, he kind of, he's, he's leaning on, how do you interpret the law? To be holy as God is holy, or to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, um, there, just for those of you that love this stuff, uh, in the Gospels, there are eight different recorded debates between Halal and Shammai, and Jesus sides with Halal seven times and Shammai one time. Is that cool? So seven one. Okay, so here we are. Um, you're like, what is that all about? Well, I'm just a nerd. I love this stuff. And sometimes you get my geek side. So... Um, he answered, so this is, this is, he puts it back on the, the expert, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus responds, you have answered correctly. Jesus said, do this and you will live. So Jesus sides with Halal. He sides with the, a very popular rabbi. And, um, and now what we know is that, that, that this is a, a very powerful kind of um, teaching of Jesus. He kind of summarizes all the commands with those two commandments. And we did a whole series on this through the summer um, of loving God, loving others, and loving ourselves. And so Jesus says this, but notice what the next part is. The next response from the, uh, the expert of the law is, it says in verse 29, he wanted to justify himself. And so he asks a question, who is my neighbor? 
You see, a neighbor in the first century in, in uh, Jewish Palestine was defined by other fellow Jews. A neighbor was somebody who looked like you, who talked like you, who acted like you, who rooted for the same sports teams. A neighbor had the same political views. A neighbor was uh, the Jewish community. And anyone outside of that was, was either a Gentile or even considered an enemy. And some rabbis uh, wrote that uh, a neighbor is someone like that, or, or as the Pharisees would say, a neighbor was, was only a practicing Jew. Only those that were observing all of the laws. So tax collectors, sinners, um, prostitutes, they, they were not neighbors. And so you didn't have to love those individuals. And so, essentially, the, 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 the expert is saying, who's in and who's out? Would you, would you define the boundaries a little bit for me? Define the boundaries. So, or, or even, you know what he's saying? He's saying, give me a list. How many of you do this? But for just a moment, I'll, humor me for a second. When I got married, I've talked a lot about my marriage with the Sex, Love, and God series. Um, but when I got married, I realized really quickly that there were a lot of things that were very different from me and Alex, my wife Alex. We were very, very different types of people. For example, I've talked about this before, but um, I learned that there is one way of cleaning the house, and then there's a totally other way of cleaning the house. Uh, I had roommates before I got married, and you know we cleaned our apartment you know, once every two months or so. And cleanliness, you know, it wasn't next to godliness for us, but cleanliness was, was just something that you did. You wipe down the counters. You, maybe you clean the fridge every six months or, when you, or you just buy a new fridge. Um, or there was all sorts of things. So I got married and, and I remember one of the first times um, we were cleaning and I, I had to do the kitchen and the bathrooms. And she came into the kitchen after I was done and I worked, I worked really hard. And she's like, hey, did you clean in here? Immediately insulted. Of course, I'm on the defense. Yes, I cleaned. She's like, did you wipe down the countertops? Clearly, I wiped down the countertops. Did you sweep? Uh, yeah, I swept. And she's like, did you clean out the sink? No, I didn't clean out the sink. Um, did you wipe down the cupboards? No, I didn't do the cupboards either. She's like, did you wipe inside the, uh, the microwave? No, I didn't do that either. Well, she's like, Darren, what did you clean? Um, just a couple of these things. And, you know, and she's like, you swept? She's like, come, pulls me by the arm. What's all this stuff over here? Oh, I missed that spot. <laughs> Um, how, any other guys or people? You're welcome. You're welcome. So what did I do? I said, you know what, babe? You know what would be really helpful? Because I clearly don't know how to clean well. After, you know, it took me a long time to say that. Okay, it took me a year. Um, <laughs> would you just give me a list? Like a checklist. Give me a checklist so that I know how to clean. Are you with me? And so I started getting much better at cleaning, you know. So now I've gotten it down. But she still, every time, she's got, she has an eye like a hawk. I, I can, she can see crumbs a mile away. It is ridiculous. So I asked for a list because a list is helpful when you're cleaning, right? Now, we are different more ways than that. For example, uh, have you ever taken the love language test? Uh, if you've ever done a, a dating class or a premarital, we do the five love languages, whatever they are. But, you know, Alex and I are the opposite on every test we ever take. Myers-Briggs, DISC, our personalities as far, you know, as extreme, and our love languages. So my love language is words of affirmation and physical touch. Most guys actually are physical touch, just so you know. And um, 
different series. And uh, hers are quality time and acts of service. So here I am, the first few years of her marriage, writing her novels of love letters. It's unbelievable. I have boxes that she just, great, cool, love letters, great. She didn't receive love through words of affirmation. She receives it through quality time and acts of service. So the fact, what she needs from me is to wash her car and clean the house really well. That's how she receives love. But what I want to do is give her all these words of affirmation. So after lots of fighting and energy being expelled, trying to figure out how to love my wife, I finally said, why don't you just give me a list? (laughs) Lists are helpful when you clean, but not when you love. Would you agree? So here's the neighbor asking, who's my neighbor? He's effectively saying, essentially saying, just give me a list so I can justify where the resources of my love goes. Because if it's this community, I can do that. Because I need to know who's in and who's out. So Jesus' response um, is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, this is my invitation. This story is not about acts of kindness. Okay? I want to invite you to hear it for the first time, like the first century audience heard it. I'm going to share the context and help us try to understand the story that Jesus was telling because this was so controversial. I want to invite you into the first century. So how did the first century audience hear this parable? Are you with me? Really? Are you with me? That's what I'm talking about. Some of you are just taking notes. Don't make a list about love. Learn how to love my wife. Make a list for cleaning. What did you learn from church today? Well, I need a list. No. um, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So a man goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, this was called in the first century the Bloody Pass because Jerusalem was 2,300 feet above sea level and Jericho was about 1,300 feet below sea level. So it was a 3,600 feet foot descent. Okay? And it was a treacherous road. And Jerusalem was the most populated city, city in, um, in Israel at the time. And Jericho was the second most populated. So this was a common pass. And it was called the Bloody Pass because there were robbers and thieves. And it was dangerous. So everyone knew what Jesus was talking about. That this is a very common story. People would have understood what Jesus is getting at. And the fact that somebody gets beaten up by robbers, totally normal. Okay? It's, it's hanging out in dangerous parts of a city at night when you shouldn't. They get it, okay? So he's traveling alone. He shouldn't be traveling alone. It says that the robbers attacked him, and they stripped him of his clothes, and they left him half dead. Now, how do you identify somebody in the first century? The first way you identify somebody is by what they're wearing. The color of their clothes gives you a great indicator on where this person is from, whether they're an Israelite or someone else. Not only was he stripped of his clothes, it says that he was left half dead, which in Hebrew means he's about to die. Um, Or uh, it also means to the Jewish, Jewish audience that he was unable to speak. How else can you identify somebody in the first century? By their accent. Essentially, the story begins with a man being robbed of his identity. That there's no way to identify who this person is. He's been beaten up. He's left for dead. He's half dead, about to die. And he's left alone on, a, on, on the bloody pass. Okay, so are you with me in the story? Yeah. 
And then it says this. Um, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Okay, a priest... This isn't a story about a priest or a Levite who doesn't have enough time. Okay? A priest was uh, part of the nobility in the first century. They represented God in the temple. And the fact that the priest is going from Jerusalem to Jericho indicates that he was serving, doing what priests do, serving uh, for two weeks at the temple. And during that time in the temple where they're working on behalf of the rest of Israel, they're offering sacrifices, they're worshiping God, they're atoning for sins of Israel, they're doing all this labor and work to provide for the rest of Israel. They're literally representing God to Israel as priests. And they represent Israel to God on behalf of Israel. Are you with me? So this priest is coming after two weeks of intense labor. But he's on a, most likely on a donkey or an animal. And he's coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which indicates he probably lived in Jericho. And he's got some time off. The, the story isn't about him passing by because he doesn't have time. The story has to do with how he interprets the law. How does he rank the laws? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Be holy as God is holy. What did you do to be holy in the first century? What did the Pharisees do? What does the word Pharisee mean? Do you remember? Separate ones. You separate yourself from anything that is unholy, unpure, impure, excuse me. Anything that could possibly defile you. So, the priest goes by wanting to honor God because of his view of the law and passes by on the other side. Why? Because if this man is a Gentile, he's unclean. If he's not a practicing Jew, he's not a neighbor. If this man is dead, a corpse, if, if the priest's shadow crosses over the corpse, he's considered defiled according to first century rabbinic rules. He's wanting to worship God in the way he understands God to be holy and set apart. And so his view of God shapes the way he lives with a person who's left dead on the side of the road. And this isn't like, hey, you pass by in a three-lane highway. This is a, a small pass. Okay? Are you with me? And so the Levite is... I'm sorry, the priest is essentially... Doing what he thinks is best. Now, if, if in fact he did stop and touch an unclean man, it meant he had to return back to Jerusalem, stay for seven more days, where he stay, stays in the area designated for defiled priests, where he would be mocked and shamed by his fellow priests, recognizing that he couldn't, in, in fact, keep the, co- the code or keep the law. So he would go back, and be mocked and shamed and go through a ceremonial cleansing and once again be initiated as clean and then eventually come home. So he has to ask himself, how do I love God? How do I stay pure? Is it worth it to get my hands dirty? So that's the priest. The next story, the character um, is expected. So there's the priest, as, as noble as it gets, as much as a religious moral character that you could have in the first century. And then we get uh, the next story. So to a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him pass by on the other side. A Levite was, um, uh, was an assistant in the temple. 
So priests, Levites, they weren't noble, they weren't in the upper class like the, the priests. They were, they were janitors, they were security guards, they were cleaning up, they were helping out uh, in the temple, but uh, they did work in the temple. And he too is answering the question, how do you love God? You be holy as God is holy. But also, he's saying, who is my neighbor? He's answering the question, surely, because I can't identify who this man is, he is not my neighbor. Because the Levites and the priests were designated by law to care for a neighbor that was dying defined in the neighbor as a neighbor someone that's defined as a fellow israelite they had the responsibility to care for them according to ancient writing but there's something else going on here the levite his boss just passed by and on a long narrow road both of them working two weeks at a time in jerusalem descending down into jericho you knew as you hiked through the trail who was in front of you and who was behind you and he's asking what did my boss do what did the religious authority do? The guy that's, you know, got it all figured out and goes to church and sits on the elder team. What did, what did he do? Is what essentially is being asked. And he passed by the man. And so the next, the next question is, no, go back to that one, is, is the next logical person in this parable is a Jewish layperson. You have the priest, you have the Levite, then you have the fisherman. You have, um, you know, the... Um, the, uh, the stonemason or the carpenter. That's, that's where it should go. But that's not what Jesus does. He says, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him. A Samaritan? Brothers and sisters, this was a derogatory word that wouldn't have been spoken of. In fact, rabbis called them the stupid people from Sheol. Hell, basically. Those stupid people from hell was the name for the, the Samaritan in the first century. Samaritans were despised. They were, the, the Jewish community saw them as racist. They were religious heretics. They were, um, they were hated by the Israelites. They did not get along. They didn't understand the commands of God. And it comes from the history of the Samaritans. You see, when Assyria came in, um, and, and exiled northern Israel, uh, the Syrian king, king came and colonized Samaria. And those Samaritans became half Jewish and half Assyrian. And they, they integrated Judaism with pagan religions. And so they were religious heretics. The Israelites th- saw them as half-breeds. They despised, they hated, they absolutely hated the Samaritans. They were their worst enemies. It would be like the Bloods and the Crips on crack. Well... <laughs> No, you know what it would be? It would, like be, it would be like a Taliban terrorist or a convicted murderer. This is the parable of the Taliban terrorist. You hated them. There was, there was ongoing ethnic cleansing battles between the two, Israelites and, and the Samaritans. The Samaritans at one point defiled the temple of Israel with, uh, with animal bones. I mean, they absolutely hated each other. In fact, in John 8:48, the worst thing that Jesus is called is in John 8:48, he's called a Samaritan. You couldn't get any more insulting in the first century. And Jesus says, the Taliban terrorists, I want, I'm doing that on purpose because that's how significant it would have been to the first century audience. Are you with me? Traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him. The word pity is splunknizomai. Say splunknizomai. Splunknizomai. Wow, you guys aren't even trying it. Come on, splunknizomai. It's right there. Go to the next one. There it is. Spot needs am I. 
It means to be moved from the bowels. <laughs> it's compassion. And it's used 11 times in the New Testament. Jesus is filled with this word. And, and, and legalism says, oh, I have to love this person. And compassion is, I have to do something about this. You with me? So he's filled with compassion. And look, look what he does. He went on and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for your extra expense you may have. So he, he, he sees him. He's moved with compassion. He has to do something about it. Then he goes and he bandages his wounds. He touches the bloody man, getting his hands dirty. He pours oil and wine. Those are things that are used in the temple as sacraments that are used for God in worship. And the Samaritans using them as a disinfectant to care for the wounds of the man. Then he puts them on the donkey. It says in the first century that if a man is walking next to an animal, that he is in the posture of a servant. If you ride on the animal, it means that you are the master. The Samaritan comes and puts the man that he doesn't know on the donkey, on the animal, and takes the posture of a servant, goes to an inn, and he spends the night there nursing this guy back to health. Because it says the next day he pays his bill and says, I'm prom- I promise to come back to reimburse any extra expense. Brothers and sisters, this is what love does. But you would never expect in a million years for a Samaritan person to do this for anyone. This is your worst enemy. And it says that the Samaritan does all of these things. And it shows, it demonstrates what love does. What does love do? Love acts. Love moves. Love makes the first move. Love makes the first move. Love takes time. It go, you have to go out of your way to love someone. You have to spend the night. You, love takes energy. You have to actually get, off your, get out of your car. You have to pull over. You have to drive them. You have to get out of your way. Are you with me? Love costs money. I mean, if you're married, you know this. If you've ever been on a date, you know. If you think she's the one, you know you go into debt to put a ring on it. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I made no money, but somehow I paid for a big old ring. And it's like, come on. Because that's what love does. Love's, love costs money. <laughs> but it's true. But not just any money. It, this guy doesn't know him and he, he cares for him. Love transports. I don't know why I put that on there, but it does. Uh, love... But think about it. Love transport. This is what I... <laughs> write this down. I was thinking about this when I, um, I... I work with the homeless often. And we have a lot of friends that are homeless that come to our church. Um, and there are some individuals that don't get to shower regularly. And I often think when I drive them in my car that doesn't have leather seats, it has cloth, is this going to smell when they leave? And it does. Do you know that? Have you ever had someone stay on your couch that they stayed once they left? Most of you have no idea what I'm talking about because you haven't lived like that. And I don't always do this. We don't very often do this. But I know that having a leather couch is helpful (laughs) when you're inviting those that smell over. But it takes your hands getting dirty. So love transports in the car. Love commits. Love spends the night. Um... Love, yeah, yeah, love spends the night. Um, 
Love risks. So, let's go to the next slide. So, this is what's going on. Um, Jesus gives them uh, this parable they weren't expecting. And I've got to wrap it up. And he says this. He, he asks another question. Which of these three do you, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? The question was, who is my neighbor? A noun, object. Who's in? And Jesus is essentially saying, who is neighborly? Verb, subject. You want a list? It's not about a list. You can't make a list for love. You can't make a list for a relationship. If it's about tasks, it's about separation. If it's about holiness, if it's about serving God with that view, then yeah, make a list. But in my paradigm, it's about action. It's about love. It's about going beyond what you even imagined. And in the first century, how did the audience hear this? The story wasn't about being a good neighbor. The story wasn't about good Samaritan laws, as we've described it. The story wasn't about random acts of of kindness. The story, the point of the story, is that the loving hero in the parable is someone the teacher of the law hates. The good, loving, neighborly person is someone the person of the law and the audience was repulsed by, was disgusted by categorize this person as the outside, as far outside as as you can get for the crowd that was in. The hero of the story was a terrorist, a convicted murderer. It was somebody that you hated. It was the enemy. In other words, the parable of the Good Samaritan confronts us with our worst enemy. It's about the people or the person in our lives that has hurt us the most that have bullied us, that have threatened us, that have caused the most pain. It's about those we've kept outside so that because of the implications of our time with them. It's those certain people in our lives that we can't even associate with anymore. The Good Samaritan is a declaration in the kingdom of God. Disciples of Jesus will learn how to love their enemies. We will include the outcasts. We will, we will uh, welcome those that are different than us, that will talk different, that will think differently, that act differently, that look differently. We will accept those that have hurt us because we extend forgiveness. That's what the Good Samaritan is about. Jesus ends the teaching with a question. Look at the question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The answer. The expert in the law replied with his teeth shut, the one who had mercy on him. Go and do likewise. The teacher of the law can't even name his enemy. He can't even say the name. The person he hates the most, he can't even name. Because when we name our enemies, it, it humanizes them. It makes it personal we begin to acknowledge something's off. Naming is a form of intimacy. In Genesis chapter 2, when Adam names the animals, there's an immediate connection between animals and humanity because of that naming. And think about this on a practical level. When somebody forgets your name, or you forget somebody's name, you feel bad. But if somebody remembers your name, it's almost like there's a sense of intimacy and knowing. And we do this all the time. With the people that hurt us the most... We give them titles. 
We don't call them by their name, do we? That my ex. That cousin. My former boss. My coworker. Insert that title for your life. That old church that I used to go to. Because it caused so much damage that we can't face the fact that they're people. Because Jesus knows it's much easier to, defi- to define who's in and out by a list than to learn to love those that are completely different than us, but more importantly, even those that have hurt us. Think of this for a second. If this message was lived out throughout history, and Christians actually live this out, and we didn't define our brothers and sisters by those that have the same political stance as us, the same denominational lines as us, those that don't believe the same doctrinal you know, statements we believe, but we, in fact we actually loved and embraced those that were different than us, what would the world look like? How many wars would we have gone to? It all starts with love. So, the two questions I have today to wrap it up. How do we love well? I showed you love acts. Love makes the first move. Some of you are feeling called to love and compassion and you know, uh, living out of this message and learning to, to embrace those on the margins and the outside. But the second question is, how do we love our enemies? And those of you that are saying, I don't have any enemies. Well, I wonder if you're playing it too safe. If you are not rubbing shoulders with people that think your life is offensive, that your grace is too good to be true, that your family is too, is too inviting. I don't know what it looks like, but maybe you have all of your friends look like you. That your world is, is this tiny little bubble of people that look and act and talk and dress and, and smell and vote for the same people and, and share the same stories. And that maybe that's all you have. But I want to invite you this morning to love your enemy. And I know all of us this morning have people in our lives that have hurt us. That really hurt us. And so this morning I want to invite you to love your enemies. And it starts by naming them. And if you have paper, I want you to write it down. When we name the one that hurts us, when we write it down, when we speak about it, it loses its power. Essentially, this is about forgiveness. And when we forgive someone, we're not letting them free. When we forgive, we are the ones that are set free. Jesus is inviting us to love our enemies. And here's why. This message in Luke's gospel will go to the ends of the earth. And it will go to people groups that are hated by the people that started it. And so the same invitation is for you. You are to go to the people that have hurt you the most. Now, I want to, for those of you that have been in an abusive situation, the disclaimer is we aren't called to enter into those relationships. If you've been abused, if you've been hurt, um, and you know who you are, we have, we have a pastoral team that would love to walk with you. We can recommend counseling. But I'm not asking you to go to those places. Do you know what I'm saying? But many of us hold grudges. And many of us are walking in pain. That, and we just, we just ignore it. And we stop, we stop using their name. And it has so much power in our lives. And I believe Jesus wants to free us from that. You with me? How do we love our enemies? We first have to name them. Second, we learn to pray for them. Write them down. And begin to pray for them. Third, we engage. We get our hands dirty. We, we show up. We don't stand by. We don't pass on the other side. We enter into the chaos and get our, get our hands dirty. And third, we see, or fourth, we seek to understand. 
How many of you have had conflict with loved ones and you just no longer talk to them anymore? Anyone else here that have experienced that? Something's happened. There's a wedge, an incident that, that led to another incident that led to another incident. And all you have is this kind of mixed emotion and you just push them out of your life. And, and then people contact them and you hear about it and it just brings up all this stuff. Do you know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one that has experienced that pain? Jesus says we're to let it go and to love. The Good Samaritan is a story of the good Taliban terrorist. Who is that person in your life? You with me? Let's pray. Jesus, um, thank you for your word. Thank you that your message goes to the places that we don't want to go. We don't want to go to those areas in our hearts. We don't want to go to the areas in our hearts that are hurting, that are open wounds, that are exposed. But you, you invite us into it. Because you know what freedom looks like. So Holy Spirit, I just pray right now as we wait for a moment um, that we would have the courage to name our enemies. That we'd have the courage to love the ones that have hurt us the most. And this is a brave endeavor. Some of us are here and we are with the person that hurt us the most most. I sense that marriage is a place of this, and I really believe God wants to free your marriage and bring forgiveness. Some of us are here, and um, the list is pretty long. I pray, Jesus, for grace to enter into a new season of learning to let go and live on. So we offer this time to you, and we ask that you would move in our hearts, God, so we would love well. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.